If you can open up to Matthew 28, we are um, in what is the section that is called the Great Commission, which means it's sort of the best way to look at this passage. It's, it's like you've just ended four years of university study, you come to the graduation ceremony, you're in your gowns, you got your hat on, and we're moving the tassel to the other side. That's really what this is all about. It's the commissioning service from the book of Matthew. And we've been here a long time. So in December of 2020, we began in the whole idea that Jesus was promised. He was the promised king that was to come to the city of David, which is Bethlehem. So we spent a lot of time showing how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scripture of God's king came to earth at a specific day in the form of a baby. Then later on, we started uh, seeing that Jesus went to Galilee, the region where he was over the Sea of Galilee and he had some of the best sermons man has ever known. He chose his disciples there. He chose them to help start his kingdom. And the whole idea of Matthew is that God wants to begin his kingdom in our heart. And someday we're going to see it with our eyes. Theologians call it the kingdom that is already, but not yet. It's already in us by faith, where it starts ruling our hearts. But it's not yet. Soon, I don't know how soon, Jesus is going to come out of the sky. He's going to leave his Father's presence, going to come out of the sky, and he's going to take over this world. And he's going to set up his real kingdom. But what Matthew's about is to start the kingdom in our hearts. That's where it begins. So that's why he gave us, Chris read it this morning, the Sermon on the Mount talks about the rules or the kind of heart that it takes to be in his kingdom. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And then he showed us the power of the kingdom through miracles, told us parables of the kingdom, what the attitude is like, how God wants humble people, not people who want to win. And then um, for the past really couple months, we talked about why he came the first time, and that is to deal with sin. Because he, he cannot have unregenerate, which means sinful people, in his kingdom. So he needs to cleanse them. So for the last two and a half months, we talked about the crucifixion, where Jesus, on the cross, took all the sins of mankind. And in order to purchase us for himself, he had to pay for us on the cross with his blood. Then last week, we talked about how the resurrection showed that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable he not only died for our sins, but he rose up from the grave. To me, the resurrection is like a receipt of payment. God got the payment on the cross, and the receipt was a man risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians calls that the first fruits of the kingdom. Jesus is the first sign that those who believed will also be resurrected with him. That's the whole story of Matthew. The coming king came in the person of Jesus, and he's coming back again. And in the meantime, he's sending people out to go and make disciples, to build his kingdom. And so that's what this is all about, starting in verse 16 of Matthew 28. This is called the Great Commission. Here's what it says. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. So 11, why not 12? Because one was a betrayer, Judas. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's what we're going to take a look at. Here's how we're going to do it really simply. We're going to begin kind of giving you the setting where this is taking place, because it's really important where the setting is, kind of is where the beginning of the kingdom, where the mission starts. Then we're going to talk about the three, what I'd say, aspects of being missionaries or being sent out on the mission. And as we look at these three things, we need to apply them to ourselves and realize that you are the one he wants to go. He's sending you. So let's begin with the setting. It says in verse 18, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So they are going to the place where they first started. Jesus is going to Galilee. This is the place where he multiplied the bread and the fish. This is the place where he gave the Beatitudes. This is the place where they went on that boat and a storm came and he calmed the storm. So he's telling the disciples, before I leave, I want to have one more meeting in that same place I called you. So you can imagine all the disciples as they go there, they probably looked over and just remember when he did this? Remember when he did this? So everything for them was the past. Now Jesus is going to say, nope, it's time to take this on for the future. When I do premarital counseling, often one of my meetings I'll say, when people come to marriage, they are usually uh, trained by media. So if you, if you watch a movie, they'll have a guy fall in love with a girl, and the whole movie they're probably trying to, should they separate, should they get together? Then the end of the movie ends with the wedding. And it's like, then the credits start flowing, and oh, they got married. What I tell people in premarital counseling, marriage is the beginning of the journey, not the end. In the same way, this book of Matthew, Matthew 28, 16, isn't the end where, wow, what a life Jesus led. It's now what a life Jesus wants to lead through you. This is your beginning. This is where it starts. I want you to notice one principle that I was thinking about this, and this may be the most important thing of this message. Is the place where he finds you, you know, the place where he calls you, he called the disciples from Galilee, is often the place where he first sends you out. The place where he finds you, in, in the situation, in the circumstance, in the family, in the friends that you're with, he doesn't necessarily want you to abandon them. He wants you to begin with them. We have this idea that he, uh, he's kind of saved us he saved us to put us in this little box with four walls called the church. And he locks it up so the bad people can't get to us. So he saves us to keep us. When I was a little kid, I had a treasure box. And in this treasure box, it was a little gold box, and it had a little skull on the front. And I got a little lock, you know, one of those little gold locks. I could click it. I had my own little key, and I put it in there. And I'd open this box, and I had green velvet on the inside. And I'd find a magnet and put it in there. I'd put like a little Cleveland Browns helmet in there, and I'd put some, some arrowheads I found in the backyard, rocks I thought were old Indian arrowheads. And I'd put them in the box, and then I'd close the box, and I'd click the lock, and I'd put the treasure box on my top shelf so my rotten brother couldn't get into it. Couldn't destroy my magnets, you know. 
And I think a lot of people think that's what salvation's all about. Jesus finds people he wants, puts them in a little box called the church, hides them away until he comes back so he keeps them safe. But that's not why he saved us. He didn't save us to keep us safe. He saved us to show us all. The kingdom begins with us. And honestly, it begins where we were saved. I was talking to the prayer partners, and I was thinking about it. And we were kind of talking about family life and everything. And Often, when we live in our house, we, we take on a persona. Guys take on the persona of tyrants. Kids should be seen and not heard. And if they come in there and they're yelling, yapping, yapping, shut up and get out of the room. But then when we come to church, we are all, isn't God good all the time? Then we get home, we say, shut up, kids. You know, like, we're tyrants. And then wives are queens. Whatever they say, you better do it or else mama's going to be mad. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Stop it. You've been redeemed. Change. Dad, you should be the primary servant in the home. Mom, you should start loving your kids. You're not the queen. You're Christ's image. You're to serve. A lot of people get on the phone. You know, right before they get on the phone, they're yelling at everybody in the house, and they get on the phone, and they put on, hi, how you doing? <laughs> Shut up! Uh, hey! You know who you should be nice to first? The people that you're closest to. That's where it begins. Where Jesus finds you, start there. Honestly, it started with my mom and dad like that. My dad was a pretty angry dude. Then all of a sudden, he's not getting angry like he used to. My mom and dad used to do a lot of, like, play games. They'd play Scrabble all the time. You know, they'd have Scrabble tournaments all night long. Then all of a sudden, my mom and dad would do this thing called Bible Study Fellowship where they go on Monday nights and meet with a group of people and do studies, and my dad would be studying. What, what are you doing? It, the commission, the mission starts in the home. I, I shared this in the first service, and I only talked about moms and dads where dad's got to quit being tyrants and mom's got to quit being queens, and somebody came up to me and said, there is a third group in there. What do you mean? Kids need to change, too. So you guys change. Uh, <laughs> no, I say it because really it should start with mom and dad, actually. We always shift responsibility. should start with me. I need to be Jesus. I just do. And so he hasn't saved us to put you in a box. He saved you to show you off. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is a letter written to the early church, but it's really how to be church is what the book of Ephesians is all about, how to be church. But Ephesians chapter 1, he's very specific in why he chooses you, what he wants you to do. And listen to what he says starting in chapter 1, 4 through 6 says, for he chose us, this is verse 4, he, meaning God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, meaning he wants us to be different people. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. For what purpose? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. We are chosen to be shown off. We are his trophies. 
takes a guy like Chris Weeks out of the mud, as it says in Psalm 103, out of his loving kindness, pulled me out of the muddy pit, and he set me up and crowned me with loving kindness and tender mercy. I'm not a creature of the slime anymore. I'm a royal, noble person. I need to start acting like it for his glorious grace. Because people say, Chris, what happened to you? You used to be really weird. Oh, you're still kind of weird, but I like you. What happened? Jesus happened. Look at verses 11 and 12. In him, again, Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What's the purpose of his will? In order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So when people see us, they can't not stop talking about Jesus. So let's go to Matthew. So how do we do this? There's three ways to carry out this mission, according to Matthew 28. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, so here they are, the disciples are waiting for Jesus, and he's probably coming up, and they're all like, is that him? When they saw him, some of them worshipped him, but some doubted. The first thing I think we have to realize, in this word doubt, sometimes people have said, this word doubt means they have denied him. No, this word doubt is the same word. Remember when Peter was walking on the water when it's storming, and he sees the storm, and he starts sinking, and Jesus saves him, puts him in the boat, and Jesus says, oh, Peter, you have little faith. Basically, the whole idea is that Jesus chooses flawed human beings, who sometimes are going to worship with all their heart and soul and strength. Sometimes those same people are going to doubt. Who is doubting here? It's the disciples. Some worshiped, some doubted. Remember Thomas? Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I see the holes in your hand and in your side. And then he was able to touch and he goes, I, I believe. Jesus goes, blessed are those who see and believe, but really blessed are those who don't see and believe. So in a way, this whole idea, but some doubted, is this idea that um, both doubt and faith will look coexist sometimes in human beings' lives. We're flawed human beings. So he's sending out flawed human beings who sometimes doubt. Doubt in this case means is hesitant, isn't sure, probably wonders, why did you choose me? I'm not that great. Flawed human beings. Doubt, however, does not mean sin. There's been a big movement in the early, specifically in the 50s, 60s. You never doubt, you just believe, and if you doubt, that's sin. Let me talk about the war of doubt for a minute. I think this is really important. Doubt is kind of like a fuzzy aspect of life where I'm just not sure. And, and to picture doubt, doubt is like a slide that goes down. It's a slide that goes down. And if I have a doubt and I don't do something about that doubt and I just let that doubt be and sit in my heart, it starts sliding down. It gets darker and darker. Here's some of the doubts that I'm sure all of you have had. A doubt like, is Jesus really real? Like right now, we teach. If you've never been here before, we believe, even though we can't see him, he is, Jesus hears me right now. Jesus can, Jesus can read your mind right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's receiving your worship, or he hears your criticisms of him. And he's alive. That's the core of our faith. Faith believes that he exists. It's the first order. 
Some people doubt that. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't see Jesus. I don't know if he's real. It's funny, I was teaching in um, Arise Ministry on Wednesday night, and I had to speak about how can you trust the Bible, and I had a picture of my dad, and I said, here's a picture of my dad. And I said, my dad is dead. You guys will never see him. How do you know my dad exists? Well, because you tell us about him. You have pictures of him. Yeah, because I have memories of him. How do you guys know Jesus exists? And so you got to battle that. Other questions we'll have is, how can we trust the Bible? How do I know that this is actually the truth of God? Other questions people have, what about hypocrites? How can we say God is real if the church is full of hypocrites? It's the number one question you always hear. Just because you ask the question doesn't mean you don't have, you are, now I don't have to believe why, because I asked a tough question. Another question is, is hell real? But here's how doubt works. If I have that question and I just let it sit there, it sl starts sliding. And if I don't look for answers, it ultimately leads to unbelief. But those come in your brain so you will seek. And if you seek, you will find. And when you find, what happens, instead of sliding down, you'll start saying, oh, I know. I'm sure Jesus exists. Oh, I know how the Bible was put together. I, this hypocrite stuff, I know how to answer that. And then what happens, you'll, it will lead to belief. The issue is when these questions of doubt come up, don't just let them sit there. You must seek and you must find because it's in the finding is when you meet God. For instance, why do you go to school and why do teachers give you tests? Why don't they just give you the answers and give you an A? Wouldn't it be great? You go to class and they give you all the answers and they give you an A because teachers want you to find the answers, learn the answers because it's in the learning and the finding you begin to know. It's the same way with God. These might, some of you might don't know the answers for that. There are people that know the answers. If you have answers, Will Snyder, over there, he knows every one of those answers. Go find him out, and he will sit down with you, and he will answer them for you. And if he doesn't, he's fired. <laughs> All right, so lesson one, we're going to have doubts. We're all flawed. But this is who he uses to reach the world. Because if he can save me, he can save you. If he can pull Chris Weeks out of the pit, oh, he can pull you out. That's the point. He sends us. The second thing is this. He sends us with power. Doesn't just send us. You see, it says in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are jars of clay. Broken, brittle, cracked, but we have this treasure inside these jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Look what he says in verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth, that's a lot of authority, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples. So because he has all authority, it leads to the therefore. Go. So what he's saying, if I'm sending you out, I'll equip you because I have all the power and authority. Think, I like to think of it like this. Before we got to the cross, 
In the whole book of Matthew, there is always this worry that the Pharisees wanted to hunt Jesus down and crucify him, and that everybody's against him. Oh no, they're going to kill him. Well, they killed him. When we get to Matthew 28, he's already died, but in Matthew 28, he rose up. So what threat, what threatens Jesus today? Anything? What can you threaten Jesus with? Nothing. So when we get to Matthew 28, 16 to the end, he isn't just a victor, he's indestructible. He, he's not scared of the Pharisees. Could you imagine a Pharisee saying, you got to stop teaching. What are you going to do to me, huh? What are you going to do to me? You killed, tried, killed me once, you want to try it again? Go ahead, try it again. You got nothing on me. This same Jesus lives in me through the Holy Spirit. So when he sends me, he sends me, greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. So when you're sent and you're terrified, I don't know if I can go do that. All power has been given to me. Let me show you how power has been given to him. This is an incredible verse. It's Acts chapter 2. And this is a verse I call how the ascension led to his coronation and what he's doing now. Okay? This is what Jesus is doing now. So if you ever go to an ordination and say, what is theologically is the incarnate Christ who is risen from the dead doing today? Specifically. Here's what he's doing. So it says, God raised Jesus from the dead. So when he was risen from the dead, he was on the earth for 50 days. And this story that we're reading is part of that 50 days. He eventually goes to the Mount of Olives where the disciples see him leave. He leaves the earth, goes up. So when he left the earth, what he did is he instantly went through the heavens and went to sit down at the right hand of the Father. And it was his coronation. Coronation means he was made king. Listen to what it says. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven. There's no higher honor. At God's right hand. And the Father, as he has promised, given him the Holy Spirit. So imagine, you know what the gift of the coronation is? It's kind of like he was given a golden bowl. And in that bowl is the Holy Spirit that he has the right to pour on whoever he wants. He gets to choose his inheritance, it says in Psalm 2. He gets to choose the people of the earth. He wants to join his kingdom that someday will reign in heaven with him. So each one of you in here who believes, he was sitting at the right hand of God, poured his Holy Spirit out to you. The Holy Spirit has a job. The Holy Spirit has a job to convict the world of sin, which means he comes to you, convicts you of your sin. He declares the righteousness of Christ, and he enlightens your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ where you want to believe, and then once you believe, he seals you with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has the power and authority to send out the Holy Spirit on who he will. He's got all power. It's amazing. And then it says, Holy Spirit, to pour out on us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So Peter's saying, Psalm 110 is prophesying about Jesus. The Lord, the Father God, was saying to my Lord, Jesus Christ. See, David's calling his son, my Lord. Lord said to my Lord, because he's David's descendant, but he's David's Lord. Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until when? 
I make everybody subject to you. So Jesus has complete authority. Everything's going to make subject under his feet. Peter ends by saying, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. He's the king. That's what he's doing right now. I like to look at it like this. When I was taking theology class in the Old Testament, people would come around the world to the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the middle of the earth. It was in the crossroads of Europe to the north, Asia to the east, and Africa to the south. So the world would cross through Jerusalem. To show himself off, he built the temple right in Jerusalem. So people would come and see the grandeur of God at the temple. That's where they came to worship. Now what God has done is he has taken the Holy Spirit who was in the temple in the Old Testament and now has poured it on us. And we now are mobile temples of God who are to go and tell. We're like RVs with the Holy Spirit inside of us. We are the camper of God going around the world, taking him and going and telling. That's our job. And God is, is all-surpassing power. Lesson three. So lesson one, he used flawed human people. Lesson two, we have all the power inside of us to go. Lesson three is this. We have been given a very specific mission, a job to do. And our job is found in verse 19. Here's verse 19. And remember, if we're given a job to do, he'll give us the power to do that job. That's what the last thing was about. So verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Our job is to make, be in the process of making disciples. There's two questions that have to be answered. The first one is go. I realized when I talked about this the first service, it didn't, didn't land too good, Bob, so I'll kind of quickly about it. There's been a big dispute, what does the word go mean? In the Greek, is it an imperative or a participle? All of this kind of stuff. If it's a participle, it means as you go, which means if you're a plumber, just as you're plumbing, disciple people. Or as you're a baker, make bread while you're discipling people. Or does it mean go? Go be a missionary. Go to the world and be intentional about reaching people all over the world. Well, truthfully, it means both. It means that we need to be intentional about sending people around the world we need to be intentional about going, when I go to work today, I'm going to try to bring up some conversations about Christ. I remember one of the things I did when I worked at Jay Riggins is I would, I'd sell suits there, you know, and ties, and I'd say, God, I don't like just going up and witnessing while I'm working because it's kind of, it's not my job, but it kind of is awkward. Will you make conversation? help me hear Help me hear conversations and start conversations so I can tell people about the gospel. If you pray that prayer, it's different than I'm going to go and make disciples. Pray the prayer, help me to make disciples. Give me the ability to hear opportunities to talk about it. So I prayed for conversational opportunities every day. And I'm telling you, they came like you would not believe. But you got to listen for them. I remember one day I'm like, God, will you just give me an opportunity to talk about Jesus? And the lady had 60s, 70s music on, my manager did, and the song was from Earth, Wind, and Fire, and the song was, I'm not 
scared to die him. You know that song, Don't Really Care. Dan, you know that song, don't you? And I said to the manager, I go, hey, you hear that song? She goes, yeah. I say, you like that song? Yeah. I go, Do you, are you scared of dying? I never thought of that. I'm not scared of dying. Like, you won't believe the opportunities you can have. I worked there, like, there were too many after a while. People kept saying, that guy, he, he's weird. Go ask him. Go ask him questions. And they'd ask me the weirdest questions. But you have to be ready to answer people. So what is our job? It's to make disciples. What is a disciple? I'll give you a really easy definition. It's a follower of Jesus who's being conformed into his image. A disciple follows Jesus for the purpose of being conformed into his image. Let me show you. Go to Romans 8, 28 and 29. Now, I'm sure you know Romans 8. Romans 8 is one of those verses that people, this would be a memory verse of a lot of people. This is a verse people use at wedding or at funerals and difficult times. But they fail to get to 29. And 29 is where the meat is. Listen to what it says. Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that all things... In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So that's normally where we end. God is always working for the good for those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. Who have been chosen, meaning to do something for him. What is it? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's why we're here. That's what a disciple is. A person who daily is being turned into the attitude and the mindset of his son. That's why I said earlier, a dad in the home has no right to be a tyrant. Why? Because Jesus wouldn't be a tyrant. A mom has no right to be a queen where everybody has to do what she says. Why? Because Jesus wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. I like to, Aaron, what I, I like to do in marriage counseling, I like to tell people about Denethor. Remember Denethor? Denethor was the steward. And the steward sat on the throne of Aragorn, who's the king, but the king was gone, so Denethor sat on that throne. But Denethor was supposed to be the king until the king showed up, but act like the king would in his place. But Denethor is a selfish man. He was acting like a tyrant. In the same sense, we are in our house. We are sitting on the Christ's throne, representing him until he comes again. Because in a sense, he is the king of our children. We are not. So we are to act like the king in his stead. We are stewards of kingship. So what we ask ourselves is when Jesus would rule this house, what would he be like? Would he be a jerk? If Jesus would answer the phone in this house, would he, would he be really nice and then scream at everybody after he's off? What would he be like? Really, what would he be like? That's the question. That's the question. A disciple is somebody who's following Christ for the purpose of being like Christ. So let me show you how it's done. And I'm going to, I believe the best way to look at churches, I was talking to Chris about this, because he's asking, what is, what is a win for you, for our church? And I'll explain that in a second. So I, I see our church, it's like a factory. We are making things. And so we put raw resources into the factory 
and work on that raw resource to have a product that comes out the other side. And so in the first, the resource are fallen, broken people come to church. People who don't believe in God, people who are ruled by their passions, people who are under the wrath of God. That is who God wants us to go get, to bring to the factory. Now, there is an old church mentality, which is our job is just to get them in the door. That's called soul winning. All we're doing is trying to get people saved. No, that's not where it, that's not where it ends. That's where it begins. We are to take this raw material and do things with it. First thing, we are to baptize. Look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, listen to how Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when it says in the name, that means we are identified in a new, like a new lead. It's not the world's lead. It's not our lead. We're not the boss. We're not the king. The name we come underneath now is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. God is three people in one. Father, who sends his son, his son, who is the image of the Father. The son died for the sins of man. The son is sitting on the throne and now sends the Holy Spirit to gather a new nation. We are now to be identified in that. We do it with the symbol of baptism. Baptism is a symbol of the real reality. So when we go under the water... It's like we're dying to our old self or we're washing ourselves of sin. We come up out of the water to say we are new people. We're under a new management called the Trinity. So baptism is this idea not just of identity of, but also of community. I am baptized into his body, into his kingdom. So baptism is I take this person who is far away from God and when they believe in Jesus by faith, the symbol of that is baptism, that I have died to my old self, and I am now under a new management. But look what also Jesus says. Go and baptize them, and then teach them. Teach them to what? To obey everything I've commanded you. So in a way, if this person's like a piece of metal, often if you ever go to a tool and die shop, they'll take this metal and then they'll flatten it out. The baptism is kind of like the flattening process. And then the second process is forming that metal into something usable. So the baptism is I'm identified. I'm coming into submission to a new lead. I'm flattening out. And now teaching forms me into a useful, useful person for Christ. So teaching means I have to now start having my mind conformed to the way God sees the world. Then my will is bent by obedience. And then as I go through this process, I come out, and the end product is somebody who is living for the praise and glory of his name. I'll show you what I mean. Go to Romans 1, verse 5. Romans 1, 5 takes this whole process and condenses it down in one little verse. One tiny little verse. Romans 1. Lord of the flies, Lee. Beelzebub keeps bugging me up here. Romans 1.5. This is, is kind of like a tortilla. You know, it's all, 
tiny little package, but inside it's wrapped all of this in there. Listen to what it says. Verse 5. Through him, meaning through Jesus, says Jesus Christ, or through our king, and for his namesake, that's the purpose, is for his glory, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, and Gentiles are people that are outside of God's favor. They're that poor person on the left side. Call people from the Gentiles to what? The obedience that comes by faith. It's not just faith. It's not just belief. But faith leads to obedience. Faith, belief, transforms me into somebody that glorifies God by obedience. That's the point. We was, so I was telling Chris, what is a win? A win is we get people on the right side with their arms up. And then specifically about 12 years ago, we put together a mission statement about the kind of disciples we want to be. And you might have heard this, but I'll reintroduce it, that we want to be people that are, first of all, daring enough to believe God. That means when it comes to his teaching, we have to have courage to believe that this is the truth because it's taking courage now. It takes courage to really believe that God says marriage is between a man and a woman. It takes courage to believe that. But that's what it teaches. It takes courage to believe that sin is going to be punished. Sexual sin is going to be punished. Um, you know, just actions of addiction is sin. It's not just psychological problems. It's something that has offended God. That's what this book says. And the only way to be cleansed of this is through repentance and forgiveness. It takes courage in our day and age to believe that. So we have to be daring enough to believe God, even to the point where we might offend people and have our names put on WZZN13. And then we also have to become obedient enough to share. Where we, because we believe, we now have to share by obedience. And sharing is you've been equipped. Each one of you have been equipped with gifts, but the normal way to say it is you've been equipped with treasure, talents, and time. Some of you have really been equipped with treasure, and treasure for the purpose of it, not building bigger barns, having more cabins, or higher-priced vehicles, but treasure to help people go and make disciples. You've been blessed, some of you have blessed with tremendous talent. Some of you are great writers. Some of you have businesses where you can really disciple people even in businesses. There's a lot of business owners in here that hire guys and disciple them through their businesses. It's amazing. And some of you have time where there are people dying out there and just going out to a coffee shop and helping somebody and listening to problems and leading them to the person that can be the answer to the problem is an amazing gift. But what has happened even in COVID is we have separated. We don't have time for anybody anymore. We've been given treasure, talent, and time. Do we believe? If we believe, then we should be obedient enough to share. Some of you are like, but that's scary. That's scary. This is why Jesus ends Matthew by saying, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age, which means even to the day 
when the king comes through the clouds and sets up his kingdom on earth, his spirit that he pours out is with us all the time. So, I only have one word. Go. Go.